0: Support for At Length, with Steve Scher, comes from the University of Washington Alumni Association. Welcome to At Length. I'm Steve Scher. On this program, we like to delve into ideas, tease them apart, get a sense of their implications and their nuance. We'll do that in particular with this program. We're going to look at the rise of chemicals in our environment that may be changing human metabolism. We're going to look at what the regulatory community is doing about it, what we can do to avoid exposure to these chemicals, and what can be done to create a new kind of green chemistry so we're not exposed to these chemicals in the first place, we're not putting them in the environment. Social, economic, cultural conditions contribute to the rise in obesity. We eat too much, we eat too much processed foods, high in calories, we don't exercise enough. But something more than our own actions seems to be at work, resetting our body's systems for regulating weight gain and loss.
1: 90% of people who lose weight gain it back. Why is that? The medical explanation is that they have weak will, that they don't try hard enough. An alternative explanation is that their metabolism is programmed to store more fat. And that if you don't want to store more fat, you have to fight against it constantly. And the people who successfully lose a large amount of weight will tell you that they constantly think about food all the time. And they fight that battle every minute of every day to not gain the weight back. That is an example of what we call metabolic programming. It's like someone else set the thermostat in the room, not you. And you have to live with the way it's set.
0: Professor Bruce Blumberg, a developmental biologist and a molecular endocrinologist, coined the term obesogens in 2006 after he discovered that exposing pregnant mice to a chemical compound called tributyltin made their offspring heavier than those not exposed, even when they were both on normal diets. Obesity has been on the rise in the U.S. for 150 years with a big uptick in the last two decades. Even lab animals are gaining weight. Even people with lower body mass index are gaining weight. The endocrine system secretes hormones in the blood that act at other places in the body. Scientists now know that fat tissue acts as an endocrine organ, releasing hormones related to appetite and metabolism. A rising number of manufactured chemicals bind to the same receptors as the hormones and either prevent proper actions by those hormones or activate them in the wrong place at the wrong time. These chemical obesogens may alter human metabolism, predispose some people to gain weight. Residues from pesticides in food and water have been linked to weight gain, so have some pharmaceuticals. Bisphenol A, found in cash register receipts and tin can linings, seems to induce the holding of fewer but larger fat cells, just a few of the many chemicals we're exposed to. Studies show that obesity is strongly linked to exposure to risk factors, such as these hormone-disrupting chemicals, during fetal and infant development. The insidious thing, Bruce Bloomberg says, is that when their lab animals were exposed in utero to TBT, tributyltin, and then never again, TBT caused a permanent effect. Bruce Bloomberg came to study the category of obesogens at his lab at the University of California, Irvine, while he was studying the molecular biology of hormone receptors.
1: And we identified some of what we call orphan hormone receptors that Molecules that look like receptors looked like the estrogen receptor or the testosterone receptor, but we didn't know what the hormone was, so we called them orphans. So I was at the Salk Institute at the time looking for molecules that were natural ligands for these orphan receptors. So one of those receptors we called the steroid and xenobiotic receptor. So this receptor lives in your liver and your intestines, and it regulates your ability to respond to chemicals. So when drugs or chemicals come in, the Receptor is activated and it increases expression of the enzymes that detoxify that that's called the xenobiotic response so we were studying this receptor and The receptor is a bit different across vertebrate species. It's not exactly the same in mouse and humans and frogs and fish So there's some species specific differences, which means that Chemicals that have these differences will behave slightly differently in humans versus rodents for example So together with a group in Japan, we were studying the activity of 20 endocrine-disrupting chemicals on this receptor, SXR, looking to see which might be metabolized differently. One of those chemicals was tributyltin, a meeting in the south of Japan in Matsuyama, very sleepily listening to talks in Japanese. I don't speak Japanese, so occasionally there are English words on the slide. I was trying to follow along. And a professor, Tanabe, from Ahime University, got up and he said, tributyltin sex reverses fishes. He has Japanese flounder that are genetically female. If you don't disturb them, they'll make 100% females. If you treat them with tributyltin in the water, 30% of them became male. So I said, wow, that's exciting. And I called back to the lab, and I said, guys, test tributyltin on the other receptors, not just on SXR, thinking it would have hit a steroid receptor. Because the way you change sexual characteristics like that, make a male into female or a female into a male, is by messing with the sex steroid receptors. And what we found instead was the tributyltin activated a receptor with the terrible name peroxisome proliferator activated receptor, or PPAR gamma, that's the master regulator of fat cell development. So there was only one way to go with that result. But it's the master regulator? It's the so-called master regulator. So if you express PPAR gamma in a stem cell, that stem cell now is a pre-fat cell. And if you activate it in that pre-fat cell with a chemical that binds to it, it becomes a fat cell. And if you activate it in a fat cell, it stores more fat. So it's a very important receptor in that process. And it just so happens, completely by accident, that I had cloned that receptor how many years before? 14 years before that when I was a postdoc at UCLA. I never worked on it because I wasn't so interested in that. And here I am working on obesity, which was something I never intended to work on, using a receptor I had
0: identified that I wasn't interested in. It's funny what fate does to... Yeah. Different animals that react in different ways because we have different... Uh, is it toxi- toxicity, basically, that we're dealing with? Uh, so that's
1: a really good question. So what is the difference between toxicity and endocrine disruption? And, and to someone who works in a different field, right? I'm not a toxi- toxicologist. So to me, toxicity is that kind of nonspecific effect that you get when you treat someone with too much of a poison. And that... Toxicity isn't usually mediated by a specific pathway. It's just a general effect. Endocrine disruption is the action of a chemical on a particular receptor, and it happens at a much lower dose. So in one case it's an inappropriate modulation of a normal system, and in the other case it's just a like swamping. It's like you know dumping a bunch of dirt on a plant. So the systems work fundamentally differently, although you could say that
0: endocrine disruption is a form of toxicity. Let's do a little basics. The endocrine system and then endocrine disruption chemicals. What is the endocrine system? Endocrine system is the system
1: in your body. It's regulated by things called hormones. And classically, the endocrine hormones are molecules that are secreted into the blood, and they act somewhere different from where they're made. So, for instance, estrogen is made in the ovaries, and it acts in other tissues in the body. Testosterone is made in the, in the testicles, and it acts at other places in the body. And there's a, there's a whole host of those. Right. So endocrine disruptors are chemicals that bind to the same hormone receptors as the hormones and either disrupt them by preventing their action or activating them at the wrong place at the wrong time. And they work in other ways too, but that's the fundamental How long have we known about endocrine-disrupting chemicals? They first started being discussed after something called the Wingspread Conference that happened in 1989, where a group of reproductive biologists and endocrinologists and toxicologists were brought together to discuss this idea that chemicals in the environment could be causing subtle harm. We knew that there are chemicals in the environment that are poisonous, And we knew from Silent Spring that there are chemicals in the environment causing cancer. So those are scary things. Here we're talking about something different. Chemicals in the environment affecting our ability to reproduce. So the the classic endocrine disruptors are ones that disrupt the sex steroid receptors. But they're much broader than that. They can affect a variety of other pathways that are also mediated by hormones.
0: Hence your Coming up with the obesogen hypothesis. This was another pathway that was being disrupted. Exactly. So this is
1: not a classic endocrine pathway, but this is a hormone receptor that's activated by chemicals to regulate the development of fat cells. And it can be disturbed by chemicals in the environment, like tributyltin and like many others.
0: Where does tributyltin come from? So
1: tributyltin was originally a replacement for copper on ship hulls. So copper is very toxic to marine organisms, kills everything. So tributyltin was a big advance. It didn't kill everything. But it turns out that it caused something called imposex in snails. So it changes the, the, the sexual characteristics of snails so that they can't mate. So the actual analogy in humans would be that it, you know, it, it turns your penis from something of a certain size to something maybe as big as your leg, and then the parts don't work anymore. So that's what it does to snails, and as a result, its use was first restricted and then largely banned on ship hulls, although it's still there because it's still on. They weren't forced to take it off. So the ships that have it, it's painted on there, and it degrades slowly over time. So what happens is when it eventually comes time for that ship to have its hull redone, you can't apply tin again. You need to use something else. So, it's still out there in a significant quantity. It's found in seafood, it's found around harbors. I don't believe that's the major human pathway of exposure. I think it's much more through vinyl and PVC plastics. It's not there intentionally, it's there as a contaminant. Organotins are used as heat stabilizers in making vinyl plastics. And it's mostly dibutyltin and monobutyltin that they put in there. But what's used is a technical mixture of dibutyltin that's 95% pure. So dibutyltin is made by knocking the alkyl groups off of tetrabutyltin. So in there, there'll be some unreacted tetrabutyltin, there'll be some tributyltin, and there'll be mostly dibutyltin and monobutyltin. So it's there. Everyone knows it's there. It's called a non-intentionally added substance. So it's a byproduct of the synthesis, and it's known to be there, but because it's not supposed to be there, it's ignored. Mm -hmm.
0: So I believe that's the primary source of human exposure. I was going to ask if there are many EDCs in, in our manufacturing process in our in our that we're exposed
1: to? Something on the order of 800 endocrine-disrupting chemicals have been identified, and that's probably an underestimate because there has been no systematic effort to identify them. These are chemicals that were discovered by accident, by someone studying something else who noticed, hey, this chemical has an action that looks like an estrogen. Let me look at that some more. So the EPA is supposed to be investigating this in great detail, but so far they haven't done that very well. Funding or because they're accidental things that doesn't occur to people? Well, there's this endocrine disruptor screening program that was mandated by the Food Safety Act in 1996, and they didn't issue the first uh, request for screening until 2009. And I don't know the exact number of chemicals that have been tested, but it's less than 50. So it's not that EPA doesn't have a budget. They have a huge budget for this. They're just doing it in a way that many of us disagree with. Why do you disagree with it? I disagree with the approach. What would be, a more, in
0: your mind, a more effective approach?
1: A more effective approach would be if they gave the money to someone else to do it, <laughs> I think. It doesn't have to be me, but someone who knows what they're doing. They're spending a lot of their money on something called ToxCast, which stands for toxicological forecaster, which basically they're doing a very large number of what are called high-throughput screening assays. So they're doing uh, assays in very small volumes and large number and hoping to get from that data which will tell them whether chemicals are likely to be endocrine disruptors or not so that they can be further tested. And so far it doesn't work very well. Too wide a net? Not too wide a net that the assays aren't performed very well. So they, they're contracting it out to companies who used to do such assays for the pharmaceutical industry. And the results, for whatever reason, just don't seem so reliable. They're pretty reliable for the estrogen receptor. They're less reliable for the testosterone receptor. And they're almost completely unreliable for the others that we've looked at.
0: So I think the approach needs to be modified. I'm going to stick with that, and then I'll go back to the science. People worry about industry capture. Is this an example of that in your mind, or is this just poorly thought through science?
1: I think it's a combination of both. So the industry has a big influence on the way science and policy are conducted at EPA. And it, it's, not, it's not universal across different industries. So in some ways, in, EPA is very antagonistic to industry. And in other ways, they're very cozy with industry. It's different different places in EPA. With respect to chemicals and chemical safety, it doesn't seem that they're very antagonistic to industry, let's say it that way. So industry has had a lot of input into the kinds of tests that are used to screen for endocrine disruptors. How widespread are endocrine disruptors generally? We live in a sea of endocrine disruptors. So they're, they're ubiquitous. Mostly human-made, and the ones that are natural, you could imagine that we've evolved to be able to deal with. Toxins in plants, for example. So there are some chemicals in particular plants that affect insects' ability to molt, so-called uh, ecdysteroids. So those exist, and insects have evolved to deal with them. And there there must be other
0: examples as well. Mm-hmm. We are also living in a sea of human-made endocrine disruptors that were mostly accidental byproducts of other processes. The fact that
1: they're endocrine disruptors wasn't anticipated, mm-hmm. right? They were made, uh, for example, they're pesticides that kill by a certain mechanism, or fungicides or herbicides. So many of these also have endocrine disrupting effects, and that I don't believe that was intentional, it was just an an accidental, unforeseen consequence of the way the chemical works. Others of them are industrial chemicals, things like bisphenol A and phthalates, that also are unintentional products. I don't think anyone intends to make an endocrine disruptor, but neither do they try hard not to make endocrine disruptors. They just make the chemicals that they want to make because they want plastic to have particular properties. And then they find out later, oops, that might be an endocrine disruptor. Oh, how can we keep selling this? How can we salvage this? How can we, you know, um, undermine that science so that we
0: we get to keep selling this? And they've done a really good job with bisphenol A. This has been something that people have complained about for the last few years, and yet it still remains on the market. The weight of
1: evidence is more than 10 to 1, probably 50 to 1, in favor of bisphenol A being harmful to health in a variety of ways. Bisphenol A, it's found largely in plastics. It's found, it's the monomer of polycarbonate, which is a clear hard plastic. And it's also present in other plastics to help to keep them soft in an unpolymerized form. So bisphenol A, it's found in um, carbonless receipts, in thermal paper. It's pretty widespread. How have they done a successful job of keeping it in circulation? By stirring up doubt. By funding studies that say this really isn't a problem. By challenging people who measure it. There's a guy up here at Battelle Labs named Justin Teagarden who claims that everyone who measures bisphenol A in a, in a serum is incompetent because it gets instantly metabolized when it's, when it's taken up. That's wrong for two reasons. One is because it's not only taken up by the mechanism he says, which is by, through the, through the, the lining of the, of the intestines, it's also absorbed through the skin in the mouth and it goes straight into the blood. If it's absorbed in the intestines, it gets metabolized by cells in the intestine to a form that's thought to be less harmful. Now that's wrong because it was just shown that that form, bisphenol A glucuronide, is also active as an estrogen. So he's doubly wrong. But yet, industry pays him to keep talking about these results and they disparage anyone who disagrees. And they have paid mouthpieces Uh, People like Richard Sharp in Edinburgh, who says, well, I'm not an expert on BPA, but anyone who thinks it's harmful really doesn't know the science. Which is, okay, if you're not an expert, then shut up. Yeah, well, that's
0: ad hominem attacks, and, yes. and, and those other kind of attacks are very effective.
1: were are we're, we're, um, honed by the tobacco industry. This is their game plan, and it's been used again and again and again over
0: the years. When you started looking at obesogens and, and, and look as a hypothesis, when did the preponderance of evidence lead you to realize that these may be the reasons why the, the obesity epidemic was worldwide and why diet and exercise wasn't enough? What was the science you were doing that? led you to those conclusions.
1: So the idea that diet and exercise isn't enough is not my idea. That's pretty widely shown already. The medical community will say it's all about diet and exercise, and if you take obese people and you make them exercise, they actually get more obese because they get hungrier from exercising. So you have to both modify the diet and increase caloric expenditure if you want to lose weight. And what happens is 90% of people who lose weight gain it back. Why is that? The medical explanation is that they have weak will, that they don't try hard enough. An alternative explanation is that their metabolism is programmed to store more fat. And that if you don't want to store more fat, you have to fight against it constantly. And the people who successfully lose a large amount of weight will tell you that they constantly think about food all the time. And they fight that battle every minute of every day to not gain the weight back. That is an example of what we call metabolic programming. It's like someone else set the thermostat in the room, not you, and you have to live with the way it's set. And if you're too hot, you can you know, wave a fan and feel cool temporarily, but as soon as you stop waving, you're hot again. So that, maybe that's a crude analogy, but you know, the, this idea of metabolic programming is that there's something that's set that regulates more or less how your body responds to calories, and everyone is different. And everyone out there who's listening knows someone who can eat everything in sight and stays thin. I had a colleague when I was at the Salk Institute who ate prodigious lunches that would feed three or four people, and he never gained an ounce. And I saw him a few weeks ago, and he's even thinner than he was then. And the guy eats constantly. His metabolism is such that he doesn't store those calories as fat. Now, maybe that's a good thing in our society, but if you think back 10,000 years, that wouldn't have been a good thing at all, would it? Yeah. It would have been a much better thing 10,000 years ago to store a large fraction of all the calories that you eat as fat. So that's the thrifty gene hypothesis, right? That there are, there are genes and, and collections of genes and the way that they work that make us be more thrifty with our use of calories that make us store more of the calories we eat as fat than burn. And what we're saying is that there are chemicals in the environment that do something like that, that reprogram your metabolism towards a thrifty phenotype so that you gain more weight from the same amount of food than someone who hasn't been exposed. One of the many things we found with our chemical tributyltin is that when we expose pregnant mice, and we'll call those pregnant mice F0, that... Their babies, the F1, and their grandbabies, the F2, and the great-grandbabies, the F3, and the great-great-great-grandbabies, the F4, all get fat. What we did is we took the F4 generation and we did a diet experiment. So they were living on normal mouse chow, which is about 4.5% fat by weight or 13% fat by calories, pretty low fat by any standards. And we switched them to a diet that was 9% fat by weight or 21 percent by calories for six weeks and they got fat immediately so they their the amount of fat in their body more than doubled over those six weeks at the end of six weeks we switched them back to the lower fat diet and they kept the weight on over the next six weeks so they gained weight easier and they didn't lose it
0: is there any way to look back into past generations to see if the introduction of endocrine disruptors in the environment reveals some shift in body type? So
1: that's kind of the holy grail, right? We would like to be able to look back into the historical records to the archived samples that exist here and there and ask the question, when did endocrine disruptors first start having an effect? If you want to look at a chemical like tributyltin, you can say, well, this was introduced in the 70s, so I don't need to look before that. It came around in the 70s. If you want to study DDT, well, we know that DDT started in the, the late 40s, early 50s. So that's the time frame that you need to look in. What we really need from, from our perspective are what are called biomarkers of exposure. So, for example, when I treated those F0 mice with tributyl tin, it was gone after a few weeks, if even that long. So it wasn't there in F1, F2, F3, and F4. It's long gone, but yet the effect persists. So what we need is a marker that exposure happened, because the chemical's gone. So what is that marker? Can we look then in the archived samples that exist? For example, the army has, has blood spots from every soldier who ever served. So could we look in those samples? There's lots of uh, what, are, what are called cohorts, epidemiological cohorts, pe- groups of people that are being studied over time for one reason or another. A lot of those, there are archival samples, right? There are samples of, of mom's urine when she was pregnant. And then sometimes samples, blood or urine samples from their children and their grandchildren exist. So can we look in these clinical cohorts and ask the question, is obesity associated with a history of obesogen exposure, yes or no, when we have those biomarkers? So that's the goal, that's where we're headed. How close are you to finding those biomarkers? Not close, sadly. Yeah. That's a long and complicated process. From the studies we're doing now, I, you know, I, I, I could pick a number, but I'd be guessing. Yeah. I'd like to say that we'll, we have those biomarkers before the grant's over. And the grant's finished in 2018. So I hope to have it before that. Because every time I go to a new place and I meet people, I give a talk, I'll meet someone who says, you know, we have a cohort... Of obese people and we would love to know were they exposed to obesogens and I would love to know too and I'd like to give them the tools to ask that question what is happening we know that when obesogen exposure happens at least in animals they respond to calories differently so in the case of tributyl tin they store more of the calories they consume than they would otherwise so that's the example of the experiment I gave you where we switch the diet So we took them on a low-fat diet, switched them to a slightly higher-fat diet, the ancestrally TBT-treated animals and the vehicle-treated animals, and one group of animals got fat and the other group didn't. And they both gained weight. I could show you the pictures over time. If we have, here's the the control animals and here's the TBT-treated animals. And when we change the diet, the control animals continue to go up like this. They get fatter, and the TBT animals go like that. And then when we switch the diet back, they both start to lose weight. The TBT treated animals lose weight too, but they never get back to where they were. All right? Isn't this what every person who's dieting says? So when we got these results, I was I was blown away. I was I was completely flabbergasted. I said, "Wow, <laughs> this is we couldn't have have predicted were such a strong effect." It's like you're laying a football on top of a flat line. So what happened is these were the last few animals left at the end of an experiment. So we're now repeating the experiment and doing this diet test at every generation. And that's a tremendously complicated
0: and expensive experiment, but we have to do it. And mice are close enough that you're, what's your level of confidence that this is happening to humans? My
1: level of confidence that tributyltin has the same effects in mouse and humans is 100%. We know that tributyltin has the same effect across all species that we've tested. Hmm. So we, in my lab, have tested mouse and frog, whole animals. We've tested stem cells from human, mouse, rat. Other people have studied different kinds of fishes, also rats. There's another group, a friend of mine in South Carolina, has shown that embryonic stem cells from pygmy sperm whales can be induced to become fat cells by tributyltin. So it's pretty much across the spectrum.
0: Professor Bruce Blumberg spoke at the University of Washington in May 2015, part of the Weight and Wellness Series at the UW. He studies exposure to hormone-disrupting chemicals in the environment and their effect on human health. For more information about the Weight and Wellness Series, search for Weight and Wellness University of Washington. You can also find... More interviews from our series At Length with Steve Scherer by searching that term. You can find our podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, and at the homepages of the University of Washington Alumni Association and the University of Washington Graduate School. Thanks for listening. Support for At Length with Steve Scherer comes from the University of Washington Alumni Association.